Chapter Six of Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mason Stevens, Sr., was a horse doctor in Rogersville, Peoria County, Illinois. He wore a grey moustache and imperial beard in tribute to that famous Chicago veterinarian who has made more racehorses stand on four legs than any other man in the Mississippi Valley. Besides horses, Mr. Stevens knew cattle, hogs, sheep, tumbler and carrier pigeons, bred to type poultry, and whiskey. If he hadn't carried a bottle about with him in his buggy, he might be alive now. Mason Stevens, Jr., wanted to be a real doctor, so he came up to Chicago to the Rush Medical College. After his first year, whiskey took his father, the funeral took the rest, and the young man, after a brief fight, gave up the vision of some day substituting M.D. in place of J.R. after his name. He had been a respected boy at school, green but positive. To help him out, some of his friends persuaded their fathers, uncles, or other sources of supply to give old Mays a chance to write their fire insurance. He took the opening. Presently his acquaintance was wide enough for him to branch out into life as well as fire. After ten years in the city he was able to go to the general agent of his company and ask for a regular salary in addition to his commissions, on the ground that there wasn't another solicitor in the state he had to take his hat off to. He was a highly concentrated product, like most successful countrymen in the city. He hadn't been scattered in culture. He knew no foreign languages, no art, save that on calendars, no music he could not hum, no drama, save, very occasionally, a burlesque show when he felt that he needs must see women. He knew, if he hadn't forgotten, how to find a kingfisher's nest up a small tunnel in the river bank, or a red-winged blackbird's pendant above the swamp waters, or a butcher-bird's in a thorn-bush with beheaded field-mice hanging from its spears. Even now, with farmer's instinct, he looked up quickly through the skyscrapers at a sudden shift in wind. He lived in a rooming-house and ate where he happened to be. His bureau was bare of everything save the towel across the top, his derby hat when he was in bed, and a handful of matches. His upper drawer, usually half pulled out, was filled not with collars and ties, but with papers related to his business, actuaries' figures, reports from all companies, his own and his rivals, records of prospects that he had brought home for evening study, rough drafts of solicitation literature he was getting up for the company. He usually worked at night in his shirt-sleeves, his hat cocked on the back of his head, his chair tilted back against the wall under a single gas-jet, with a ground-glass globe that diverted most of the light upward toward the ceiling. Even after he reached the point where he could afford more expensive living, he did not change. He wore better clothes because a front was mere business intelligence, but otherwise his habits were within a hundred and fifty dollars of his first year. Pleasure he regarded as the enemy, not so much because of its money cost, as because it was diverting. He didn't wish to be diverted. He wished to sell life insurance and more and more. That was as far as he went with his plans. He didn't want to get rich so as to gratify dreams, to have a beautiful wife and buy her a big house and motors. He simply wanted to get rich. 
He had had no romance since he left the Rogersville High School. That one had been sweet enough for a while, but nothing came of it. And he remembered that on account of it he had neglected his studies senior year, and not graduated at the top of the class. Indeed, the object of his affection, with fitting irony, had herself achieved that distinction, which cooled his fever for her. Mason was a great believer in the value of bumps. When he made a failure in any enterprise, he was wont to analyze why, in order to double-guard himself against a repetition of it. None but a fool repeats a mistake. He drummed that into himself. Thus, in the long run, he was ready to turn every bump into an asset instead of a liability. It is a system of philosophy widespread in this nation, especially among country-bred people of Puritan tradition, strong, rugged people, who believe in the supreme power of the individual will, who minimize luck and take no stock in fatalism. These are usually termed the backbone of the American people, and though of course they know that God is everywhere and omnipotent, they likewise believe that he has appointed them, his deputies, with a pretty free hand to act in the conduct of the earth. Mason Stevens came of this stock, and though his father was a backslider, his mother was not, and she brought him up on the saying, Maybe this will teach you a lesson, my son, next time you think of doing so-and-so. This shows why Mason Stevens did not fall in love with any woman, after the high school girl, until he fell most desperately in love with Georgia Connor. He resisted love from conviction. One female, ten years before, had defeated his brains and his purpose by her charm. He wanted no more of that. But he had to fight. Often enough, as he walked through the long office, through the double row of shirt-waisted figures, bending over typewriters and desks, it seemed imperative for him to know them better, to wait for one of them after office hours and ride home with her on the car. Everything else was wiped out of him for the moment, but just the question of riding home with a twelve-dollar-a-week girl. Then he would walk quickly on past the girl who absorbed his imagination, his mouth set and his brows scowling, and she would confide in her neighbor that he was crazy about himself. Sometimes when he was at home under the gas-jet with his business papers on his knee, the vision of fair women would float before him, all the most beautiful in his imaginings as he had seen them in pictures or on the stage. He might dream for an hour before remembering that he was in the world to sell life insurance, and that women would hamper his single-mindedness as sure as whiskey. Who was the man he was surest of making sign an application blank when he set out after him? The man who had a woman in his head every time. The man with the wife and children, which are the consequences of a wife. Or one who was gibbering in a fool's heaven because a young girl had graciously promised to allow him to support her for the rest of her days. So he kept away from bad women as much as he could, and from good women always especially from those in the office. Their constant propinquity was a constant menace, and he had known a lot of fellows to get tangled up that way, and he wouldn't if he could help it. But he couldn't help it after he knew Georgia. She was so useful mentally and physically, and that was what he first noticed about her. 
He hated slackness of any sort, especially in women, because he had trained himself to dwell on women's faults rather than on men's. Her manners, he thought, were precisely perfect. She seemed to hit a happy medium between gushing and shyness, and to hit it in the dead centre. Her teeth were white and good, and she smiled often, but not too often. She never overdid anything, and her voice was low and full. She knew what you were driving at before you half started telling her. Also she could make a fresh clerk feel foolish in one minute by the clock. She had the charm of perfect health. About her dark irises the whites of her eyes were very white, touched with the faintest bluish tinge from the arterial blood beneath. There was a natural luster in her hair, uncommon among indoor people. Her steps took her straight to where she wanted to go. She made no false motions. When she looked for something in her desk, she opened the drawer where it was, not the one above or below. Her muscles, nerves, and proportions were so balanced that it was difficult for her to fall into an ungraceful posture. Considering these manifold excellent qualities, the most remarkable thing about her, he thought, was that she had not long before been invited to embellish the mansion and the motors of a millionaire. He wrote enthusiastically to his mother, suggesting that it would be nice to invite her to Rogersville for a portion at least of her coming summer vacation, which brought a most unhappy smile to his mother's lips. But since he did not repeat his request, the invitation was not extended. The first time that he knew he regarded her as a woman, rather than as a workwoman, was one afternoon when the declining sun threw its light higher and higher into the big office. A ray shone on and from her patent leather belt and into his eyes. He looked up annoyed from his work. She was sitting a few desks ahead by the window, her back toward him. Before very long the thing had fascinated him, and he found himself immensely concerned with the climb of the sun up her shirt-waist. It reached her collar in a manner entirely marvellous and, then precisely at the moment when he was finally to know its effect upon her hair, she lowered the shade. What luck! The next day was cloudy. The next was Saturday, and she quit at twelve before the sun got around to her window. Monday she lowered the shade before the light got even to her shoulder. Little did she know of the repressed anguish she was so bringing to the gloomy young hustler behind her. But on Tuesday the sunlight reached her hair momentarily, as she leaned back in her chair, and gleamed and glittered there, a coruscation of glory for full thirty seconds, long enough to overturn in catastrophe his thirty years and their slowly built purposes. He resolved hereafter to deal primarily not in life insurance, but in life, which meant Georgia. End of chapter 6